I want to begin by saying happy birthday. Does everybody know what birthday it is? Yeah, number 95. So on the weekend, yeah, give it up. Ninety-five years ago, about right now, we had our first class starting. Also 95 years ago, a guy was born named Doug Kirk. That was the Kirk family that invited my granddad to come up here and start this little Bible study, and we're continuing on with the great tradition of that Bible study. But it was the Kirks who were, you know, sort of, this was one of their great visions. And what a great opportunity we had on Saturday over in the gym to high-five Doug Kirk, who turned 95, or does in a, in a couple weeks. He's about the same time. So he, I think he's a couple weeks away from turning 95. Same, and he's pushing his wife in the wheelchair. Who's in the wheelchair? His wife. He's pushing it. 95. He's, I love that. Those Kirks are hard to put under. There we go. You know, anyway, it's great to high-five the people who helped get this place going, and I think the Maxwells may get too much credit along the way, but we don't want to forget about the Kirks. In fact, it's one of my ideas, and I think shared by many around here, that we will find a building to put their good name on in the next couple of years. We're on our way toward 100, and uh, you're going to begin to hear more and more about that. Those of you who are in a four-year class and going to take five years to do it, you're going to be here for our 100th graduation. <laughs> I also want to take a moment to welcome a very dear friend to Elaine and I, B.J. Jansen from the Rosebud Country, and she brought with her Frank Nickel, who looks after Rosebud Theater. Welcome here, sitting dead center, best seats in the house right there. Love it. So there's a, t a dynasty threat going on, Mark versus Mark. I looked a little bit angry in there. I'm, I'm hoping Dr. Mark wins, because I think I looked angry in that picture. I'm not sure what's going on with that, but... Um, you better win in this one, because we want happier people around here than that. <laughs> Dr. Mark versus Mr. Mark. What a lot of fun that is. There's another dynasty being threatened, and that's by the Imes. I'm positive they've come in here to take over the whole school. Dr. Carmen Imes and Danny, her husband, and their kids have arrived. They have an interesting story to tell in how God brought them here. I'm not setting her up that she has to tell that now. You need to take her class so you can hear her story, I think. But... There are many God stories in this room, stories of what God has done in your life or just interesting things that you've seen. You go, wow, that, that must be God at work. Now, Pamela Fraser would like to begin to post those stories. If you want to write epistles, she may take some editing liberties. But she's looking for more stories about how God is working around campus, how God is working in your life, how God brought you here, or what he's doing in directing you. So, it's there. If you would send an email to Pamela Fraser at prairie.edu, she would love that. She'd like to begin telling a little bit of your story or our collective story, because that's what it is. It's high-fiving God in what he's doing around us and through us and in us. So, if you would do that, she'd be grateful, and we'd begin to, um, you know, sort of tell the story of what God is doing here on our campus in that way on social media. Carmen, it's a delight to have you here. Would you come on up while I pray? Um, you know, the story of them arriving here is one that has to be one where you just simply say, it could only have been that God was at work in this. Only He could have made 
the dominoes fall the way they did so they could be here to, to, to provide an amazing Old Testament professor for us and add to our community. We have many, many people on this campus who are deep wells of talent. You know, we, we high-five them at different times, and I love celebrating the different talent that God has given us. And here again, God showed up, bringing with us, bringing uh, Carmen to us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Carmen. We, pray, we thank you for her whole family. We pray that you would bless them as they settle in. We pray that you would help us to make them feel welcome here. Thank you for bringing them to us. We thank you for Carmen and the love you've given her for your Old Testament, for your word. Help us to hear from you now. We pray that you would give her especially an enormous blessing, a supernatural blessing of your Holy Spirit, that she would speak for you and that we would hear from you. Bless us now by being very, very alive in our hearts. We give ourselves to you and ask that you would direct us. We are your servants and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen. Well, my first God story this morning is that the worship team picked the perfect songs to go with my talk today. If you have paid attention to the chapel schedule, you think that I'm getting up here to talk about Moses and his intercessory prayer at Sinai, but with Mark's permission, I've completely changed topics um, to explore a different kind of prayer with you. It's mostly Phil Calloway's fault. Last week, he shared the lyrics of a country song about prayer. Do you remember? I was so intrigued that I looked it up. I haven't been to church since I don't remember when Things were going great till they fell apart again So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do He said you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you Sometimes we get angry But we must not condemn Let the good Lord do his job You just pray for them I pray your brakes go out running down a hill I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill And knocks you in the head like I'd like to Okay, this is certainly not what the preacher had in mind when he encouraged this man to pray. We don't pray this way in church, and our gut tells us that a prayer like this is entirely off limits. And then we read the Psalms, because Richie told us to, and we come face to face with prayers that sound an awful lot like that song, with an emphasis on awful. Declare them guilty, O God. Banish them for their many sins. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness. Rise up, Lord. Confront them. Bring them down. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it. And may there be leftovers for the little ones. 
May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff that the wind drives away, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. May ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them, and may they fall into the pit to their ruin. And then the ugliest of ugly prayers, Psalm 137. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you deserve, according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What do we do with that? So perhaps you're thinking, Carmen, I know just what's going on. Let me explain. This is the Old Testament where we talk about the God of wrath, and it's all before Jesus. So as soon as we get to the New Testament and we get Jesus, then it's all love and flowers and puppies. We're beyond violence. These are the Psalms. Well, let me, let me say this first. We're going uh, to turn and see if that's the case. Is the New Testament beyond violence? So turn with me to Psalm 69, which is one of these violent prayers. Oh, not yet. The fancy name for these psalms is imprecatory. Say it with me. Imprecatory. An imprecatory prayer asks God to do violence to the psalmist's enemies. Dozens of biblical psalms include imprecatory language. These are the psalms we skip over in church, except this week at Bethel because they let Mark Jonah get up in front, and he's a bit edgy, and he read Psalm 13. But normally, normally we don't read these in church. Believe me, uh, we also don't um, print them on canvases and hang them on our walls. Anybody have a psalm on their wall? I do. Um, but these are not the verses we print on canvases. I know because I Googled it to see if there were any. The only thing I could come up with was this. <laughs> this is a news release from the Babylon Bee about a year ago. If you haven't discovered the Babylon Bee yet, you are missing out. According to sources, local family, the Fullers mistakenly selected a violent and precatory psalm as their chosen verse for this year's Christmas card, which was mailed to all of their friends, family, and co-workers. <laughs> the verse in question is Psalm 58, verse 6, which reads, O oh God, shatter the teeth in their mouths, according to witnesses who have received a copy. The trouble started when the Fullers reportedly chose to save time this year by uploading a family photo and Bible verse to an online service, which automatically creates and mails a custom-designed Christmas card to the addresses provided. We decided on Psalm 86, verse 8, but I must have fat-fingered it when I typed in which verse number I wanted them to print out on the cards, the horrified patriarch Jim Fuller told reporters. Psalm 86, 8 would have been great. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. But instead, I've got Aunt Shirley calling to ask what kind of sick weirdos we are. <laughs> the Fullers plan to use a New Testament verse next year <laughs> to avoid a similar problem. We'll pick something Jesus said. He always spoke kind words of gentleness, Jim noted. Right? Right? because imprecatory prayers are no laughing matter. 
But how does the New Testament handle these imprecatory prayers? You might be aware that the book of Psalms is the number one most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to circle all of the violent verses in Psalm 69, and then we'll check to see which parts of Psalm 69 get quoted in the New Testament. Sound reasonable, right? So if, they, if the New Testament authors are like us, they'll skip over all the bloody stuff and get to the good stuff. Okay, so here's Psalm 69. You don't need to be able to read it from there. All you need to know is that these are the violent verses. Now, look what happens when we turn into red print all the verses that the New Testament quotes. The violent parts of Psalm 69 are precisely the parts that are most important to the New Testament authors. This is where they're turning to help them make sense of their experience. Jesus' crucifixion, his betrayal, Judas's betrayal, the final judgment, this is where they get their best theology. Yes, our God is slow to anger and abounding in love, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God holds the wicked accountable for their sin. When we pray against those who do wrong, we are aligning our purposes with God's. We cry out for justice, and imprecatory prayers are one way of praying with Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Eugene Peterson, the translator of the message, says we need these violent prayers he decries the practice of performing psalmectomies, which is kind of like tonsillectomies, you know, where you take your tonsils out. Psalmectomies take all of the ugly parts out of the psalms. And he says, psalmectomies are wrong-headed because our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. Embarrassed by the ugliness and fearful of the murderous, we commonly neither admit or pray our hate. We deny it and suppress it. But if it's not admitted, it can quickly and easily metamorphose into the evil that provokes it. So now that I've made my case for imprecatory psalms, let's try one on for size. Turn to Psalm 3. The superscription of this psalm says it's a David psalm. However, you'll notice that the superscription for Psalm 3 is even more specific. We have a historical note in his fleeing from his son Absalom. We are being invited to read this psalm with David's story in mind as David's own personal prayer when he's in the midst of great distress. So before we read it, let's get up to speed on the story. To do this, we enter a rather sordid part of David's family history where a troubled past comes to bite him. Here is the Cliff Notes version. Do you, rem do you remember the story of Amnon and Tamar? Now, for my Torah students, this is not the Tamar we just read about in Genesis 38. This one comes generations later in David's family. But they have similar fates, I'm afraid. Both Amnon and Tamar were children of David, but they had different mothers, so that makes them half-siblings. Nonetheless, Amnon couldn't keep his mind off Tamar and arranged, with David's unwitting help, for them to be alone so he could rape her. David was furious when he found out, but he did nothing about it. T Tamar's older brother Absalom 
other brother Absalom was livid when he heard what happened and began plotting revenge and biding his time. He waited two years, and then he asked his father David to send his brother Amnon the rapist to a feast he was having. David, the gullible dad, sent Amnon, and while he was there, Absalom had him killed. At that point, Absalom ran away, fearing David's wrath, and stayed away for three years. Meanwhile, David was at home longing to have Absalom back home, but saying nothing. Finally, David sends for him, but still can't bear to see him. Absalom lives in the same city as his father for two full years without any conversation between them. Finally, Absalom forces a meeting and they reunite, but it appears that the rift is so deep that they can't mend it. Absalom was both handsome and shrewd, and he began to usurp his father's political power very gradually. Let's join the story in 2 Samuel 15. You can keep your finger in Psalm 3. We will get back there. 2 Samuel chapter 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, oh, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So Absalom steals their hearts by undercutting David's authority. Next in the story, he gets David's permission to go out of town on, on a pretense, and while he's away, he declares himself king and marches on Jerusalem. David evacuates. When Absalom arrives in Jerusalem, he rapes David's concubines in broad daylight as a means of publicly demonstrating his political power. This is the same Absalom who was so angry at his rapist brother. It's an audacious move. Then he rallies the Israelites to march against King David. Were you feeling like you had a dysfunctional family? <laughs> David says, welcome to the club. So now we're ready to read the psalm with this backstory in mind. And as we read, I want you to notice that the psalm is totally preoccupied with self. Until we get to the last verse, every line concerns me or my or I. David is in utter distress and cannot see beyond his immediate circumstances. I love that this is in the Bible because this is exactly what we're like when we're in the midst of crisis. So let's read the first stanza together. Yahweh, how many are my enemies? How many are those rising against me? How many are saying of me, God will never rescue him? How many, how many, how many? Life is closing in on David. He's surrounded. Not only his son, but his entire nation has turned against him. 
And notice what his enemies are saying. God will never rescue him. I wonder if David begins to believe them. Here he breaks with this cry of distress. Let's read it together. But you, Yahweh, are a shield around me, my honor and the one who holds my head high. My voice cried out to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy mountain. It's fascinating because, because he's surrounded on every side by enemies, but he sees the Lord as a shield around him. He feels surrounded by Yahweh, and he's, um, he's reaffirming God's protection that he enjoys. He says, my voice cried out to Yahweh, which is exactly what we are invited to do when we're in distress. We are invited to cry out to Yahweh. And then it says, God answered him. Now, if we flip to the, if we glance ahead to the end of Psalm 3, you'll see that he's actually still in distress, still crying out for God to rescue him. So in what sense has God answered him? The answer comes, ironically, from his holy mountain. That is the temple in Jerusalem where David just ran away from. David's faith is so secure, he knows that although he is in exile, Yahweh is not. God is still on his throne. And, it, and if we look and see that um, ahead that God has, an, so we, he says, Yahweh has answered me. But if we look ahead to see what is it that God has done, clearly he's not rescued him from Absalom, not yet. So the answer that he's talking about here is one that comes in the midst of crisis, not when it's all over. Here is the class A miracle that he experiences. Let's read it together. As for me... I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh was watching over me. I am not afraid of myriads of enemies who surround me on both sides. The same David whose enemies are chasing him down and trying to kill him, that David who's fleeing for his life can lay down and sleep because Yahweh stands guard for him. Have you ever been through a crisis so intense that you could not sleep? You lay awake for hours, replaying a conversation over and over in your mind, thinking of all the things you should have said or you want to say. Or maybe you turn a problem over and over in your mind, looking for a solution, trying to figure it out. Or maybe your eyes spring open in the darkness every time you hear the least little noise because you're terrorized with fear. David's struggle is no less intense than yours or mine, and yet God met him in his mad dash for safety and gave him a good night's sleep. What a practical gift. David wakes up in the morning and he's still alive. Another gift. He can say, I'm not afraid of many myriads of enemies who surround me on both sides. He is surrounded, trapped by the enemy, and yet he knows that Yahweh also surrounds him as a shield. The enemy can't get at him without going through Yahweh. He goes on, let's read this together. Arise, Yahweh, rescue me, my God, strike all my enemies in the jaw, shatter the teeth of the wicked. Rescue belongs to Yahweh. 
May you bless your people. So following on the heels of this statement of confidence and this good night's sleep, David calls for help. He has received good gifts, sleep and safety and trust, but his needs are still urgent, and so he prays. Notice the connection between his prayer here and what the enemies have said up in the beginning of the psalm. God will never rescue him. And now David prays, rescue me, my God. You're the God they said would never rescue me. Prove them wrong, Lord. And then David follows this with specific violent requests. We finally got to the imprecatory part of this psalm. Strike all my enemies in the jaw. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. This is poetic justice. These men have dared to open their mouths and say that God will not save. And so David is praying that God will strike them precisely in the organ of their disobedience and rebellion. Rescue me, then make it so they can never make such an audacious statement again. But surely this request is out of bounds. How can David dare to pray like this? If the Psalms are a prayer book of the church, shouldn't we skip over this part? Shouldn't we just forgive? Here's the deal. Listen carefully. David did not break their teeth. He prayed for God to do so. What strikes us as extreme violence is actually nonviolent. Rather than taking vengeance himself, David is putting this one on God's desk for him to deal with. He makes his request and leaves it up to God. By articulating his deepest desires for justice, he bears his soul in God's presence. Here's what I need, Lord. Here's what I want you to do. There's nothing hidden from God's sight, and in the process of praying, David has let it go. This satisfies his need for revenge because God is on it. Biblical prayer is not an escape from reality. It confronts that reality head on, and head-on collisions are ugly. He says in the, in the end, rescue belongs to Yahweh. He recognizes that he actually has no ability to get himself out of this mess. He's depending on God to rescue him. So how does David's story end? If we flip back to 2 Samuel, we see that the violent rant of his prayer does not match his own actions, which is fascinating. In prayer, he can vent, shatter the teeth of the wicked, but when he gives orders at, as king, listen to what he says. Turn to 2 Samuel 18. There, it's finally time for the confrontation between Absalom's army and David's army, and listen to what David says as his soldiers are going out to battle. 2 Samuel 18, verse 5. We'll start in verse 4. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. All the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. His prayer called for justice, but his orders call for mercy. This, to me, is proof that he's let go of his need for revenge. Ugly prayers must be prayed or things will get uglier. 
Sooner or later, if we haven't already, each of us will face something ugly. Someone whose, hurt, whose own hurts have never healed and who seems bent on destroying us. Let's face it. The turbulence of this world is not something we just read about or see on the news, although we see plenty of that. It plays out in our own homes, in our extended families, in our workplaces, in our churches. Like David, trouble hits a little too close to home. And when it does, we're invited to come as we are in prayer, to say it like it is. You are not alone. Even if no human stands at your side to defend you, all is not well in the world. It's entirely appropriate to be angry. And you are not asked to leave your ugliest emotions at the door. You have a safe place to express them right in the presence of God. He can handle it. The country song we heard earlier is not quite on target. It reflects a vindictiveness without God. Wishing random harm on your enemies out of spite is not what the Psalms model for us. Instead, they show us how to present our deepest needs to God, trusting Him to take care of those needs and do what's right. Ugly prayers must be prayed or things will get uglier. There's a clear connection in the Psalms between the enemy's unrighteous acts and what must happen to keep them in check. We do not read random requests for violence, but a targeted response to the enemy's sin. If they've been speaking evil, the psalmist prays for God to shut their mouths. If they've been digging pits, the psalmist prays they will fall in them. If they've been devising secret plans, the psalmist prays they'll be found out. In the end, the psalmist's desire for God to smite their enemies is not a petty vindictiveness but reflects a deep desire for justice to be done and for right to prevail. This is kingdom work. When we don't pray our anger because we think it's unspiritual, it comes out sideways, and it hurts those around us. But imprecatory prayers are more than just therapeutic. They also bring us in line with God's character. Eugene Peterson says... I think I have it here. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. In prayer, all is not sweetness and light. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear respectable, but expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. You and I have kingdom work to do. Let's get praying. Thank you, Carmen. We've heard God's voice through your words today. Some of us in this room have been afraid to come before God and to be honest with Him because of the things that we've experienced, maybe because of the way we feel about things. But God knows our hearts, and He loves us. So just before we go, would you bow in prayer and just bring to God that which you've been maybe too cautious to bring before him and ask for his will to be done. Heavenly Father, would you give us a renewed vision of who you are through the power of your Spirit in our lives. 
that we may walk in a manner worthy of that which we've been called, knowing that we are to be salt and light in this place, also knowing that there is one who works against the very purposes of God. And so we bow before you in submission and humility before the God whose arm is not too short or not too weak. You're able to accomplish your purpose. Do that in our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Go with God.